Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way, and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen. It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, quick note that I am still hard at work with Ryan and others on Thunder Bay, and so this is going to be a guest-hosted episode of the show. It's going to be hosted by David Scott. I've actually been trying to get David onto the show for some time. He is a Canadian guy who rose to be an executive at the Boston Globe, kind of led their digital push, and then came back to work at the Toronto Star. And that didn't last very long. And I want to ask him questions about what happened at the Star. And uh, maybe he'll do that eventually. But today, he's going to be filling in for me, talking about a story that has been reported by his new independent Canadian news outlet, The Logic. I haven't really talked about the logic on Canada land yet. Um, As a former tech journalist myself, I'm really interested in what they're doing. I have some questions about what they're doing. But Canadian tech coverage has for a long time largely been not terribly tech literate. And having something that actually engages with the tougher questions of the policy around tech was long overdue. The logic is an attempt at that work. And today, what David is going to be doing is talking with one of his reporters about a pretty tremendous story that they have been reporting the hell out of. This is going to be a great conversation. I'm a little bit jealous that I'm not the one having it with the logic's reporter, but I'm at work at Thunder Bay. And speaking of Thunder Bay, thank you for the overwhelming response to this series so far Those of you who support us on Patreon, we are making that show because you funded it. That is a show that we've made together. We collectively wanted that story to be told. So I'm really appreciative with everything that everyone is doing to spread the word about it. Let's keep spreading the word about it. I I just want as many people as possible to hear this show. To those of you who do not support us on Patreon, this is crowdfunding month. We're halfway in. And very briefly today, what I want you to know is that the Patreon funding that we received for Thunder Bay That is what started that production. We would not have started making that show if we hadn't gotten funded. But that was about $36,000 for a one-year-long project that had more than six team members working on it, a lot of travel back and forth to Thunder Bay from Toronto and Winnipeg, a researcher, additional reporting. It just went on and on. And guys, we totally blew that budget. We spent like at least three times that. That is what the story demanded. You just don't always know when you start this process what it's going to take. And when we started getting the tape that we were getting and following the threads that we were following, I was not going to hold back. That's what the show needed. That's what the story demanded. We did other things this past year. We produced Wag the Doug, and we released it without ads. 
getting the advertising lined up takes time. A lot of the time you need to build an audience first. We didn't feel like we had that time. We felt like somebody had to do a deep dive and take a close look at Doug Ford as he rushed to power. So we just did it. This past year is also the year that we hired Jaron Kerr to spend four months full-time investigating the Kielberger's We movement. And we did that with no revenue attached to that project because that's what that story needed and it needs much more. And Jaron is continuing the reporting on that story as I speak. That is how we've been working. We can't know during crowdfunding season what's going to happen in the news in the year ahead. There's a lot of stuff that we can't anticipate. But as a news organization, we have to be and we have been willing and able to just allocate resources to stories as they pop up. I'm telling you this because I want you to know that when I ask you for money, this one month of the year when we ask you for money, and guys, it's it's just as awkward for me as it is for you. But when I do it, it is important for me not to simply be making promises about what we're going to do if we get your support. I want you to know what we have done, what we do here every day, what we do above and beyond the support that we get from Patreon, sometimes matching your contributions dollar for dollar, and sometimes, I don't know, three or $4 for every dollar that we get via Patreon. My point is simply that if you are going to support journalism in Canada and whether you support us or somebody else, you need to support journalism in Canada if you want there to be journalism in Canada. So if you're going to support it, there is no better bang for your buck than supporting Canada Land. We make every dollar that we receive count. We punch above our weight and the proof is in our work. Put us to work for you. Be a part of this. Be our partner in producing journalism and in making these podcasts. You will get our best work. We'll make you proud. Go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Now is the time when we need your help. We have some wonderful things to send you. And if you give us $5 or more per month, no ads. Last fall, big tech came to Toronto. It was a good news day, with headlines in the Globe and Mail like, Google's sister company makes bold bet with new tech-focused neighborhood Sidewalk Toronto, and others calling it a global hub for urban innovation. The city's mayor, John Tory, proclaimed, This is a moment for Toronto. And our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, said the project offered unprecedented opportunities for Canadian innovators. And this was something to celebrate. Sidewalk Labs was going to build a smart city, a city of the future, from the ground up in downtown Toronto. A city that could route autonomous vehicles, sucking up a constant stream of information on everything from noise levels, air quality, and energy usage to reduce our carbon footprint. The first of its kind in the world. And it was happening right here in Canada. Sure, there were some privacy concerns buried in the fine print, but hey, this was our moment. Or so it seemed. Fast forward to today, and this project is falling apart. In the past four months alone, there have been four high-profile resignations and one firing. Waterfront Toronto CEO Will Fleissig pushed out. One of the top venture capitalists in the country, John Ruffalo, gone. Board member and developer Julie DiLorenzo, gone. Tech entrepreneur Sadja Musafar, gone and world-renowned privacy expert Anne Kavukian, also gone. And, in a rare step, Ontario's Auditor General is investigating the deal. 
op-eds are being written in national newspapers, news organizations around the globe are now paying attention, and politicians are asking tough questions. Sidewalk Labs has even hired crisis management firm Navigator to help them through the firestorm. I'm David Scott, and I run The Logic. Our reporter, Amanda Roth, has spent the last eight months investigating Sidewalk Toronto. This is the story of what happens when big tech comes to town. Amanda joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Adam Spinks, Andrea Nielsen, Jay Sunsern, Sebastian Hutchings, Melissa Sharma, Frederic Bernot, Sean McNeil, and Claber Figueredo. Hi, my name is Claber Figueredo, and I'm a new Canadian resident originally from Brazil. I support Canada Land because I find it invaluable too to explain this place I now call home. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now, and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. So, Amanda, let's first get the disclaimers out of the way. Uh, you work for The Logic. I do. Uh, I am technically your boss. You are. This is going to be a lovely interview. <laughs> uh, take us back if you can to that moment on October 17th, 2017, that really was the culmination on the start of, of this project. Yeah. So um, the announcement between Sidewalk Labs and Waterfront Toronto actually saw all three levels of government participating. So at the time, it was then Premier Kathleen Wynne, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and Mayor John Tory. And I think uh, it was received with great fanfare, um, but I also think that that announcement kind of led to a lot of misconceptions that were carried throughout the year. Um, and that really ultimately provided a lot of problems or uh, made Sidewalk Labs and Waterfront Toronto face a lot more problems throughout the year. We'll come back to those misconceptions. But first, for those that are, are listening who are not familiar with your coverage, uh, you've written, I think I counted last time, 10 exclusive stories, 15 in total, about the story. So Unpack for us the players, if you can. Sure. And then from there, we can dive into into the specifics. Um, what is Waterfront Toronto? Right. So Waterfront Toronto is a arm's length corporation that was established upon request by all three levels of government. And they're tasked with the revitalization of Toronto's waterfront. So what, what Toronto's waterfront has long been um, kind of a, a difficult space for three levels of government to come over agreement on. It's previously industrial land, so there's a lot of environmental hills that need to be tackled. Um, so Waterfront Toronto was provided as a solution to the issue 
of how do we approach revitalization in this area. And just for those of people who've never been to Toronto or don't know Toronto, the waterfront that you're talking about is, you know, there's the downtown, the CN Tower, the Sky Dome, mm-hmm. Rogers Centre, you see all that. Yeah. Where is this part, part of land? I mean, the waterfront spans throughout the entire south of downtown Toronto, but the, the major areas that needed this revitalization is more of the eastern waterfront. So that's uh, the mouth of the Donland River, the Portlands, which used to see most of the... Um, the water freight be brought into downtown Toronto. Okay, so that's Waterfront Toronto. Uh, Sidewalk Labs. So Sidewalk Labs is a sister company to Google. um, And if you don't know, both those companies are owned by Alphabet. And its main uh, objective or business model is to provide urban innovations. And, you know, we've seen very broad examples of urban innovations come from Sidewalk Labs, everything from healthcare innovations to traffic flow. But this truly is, I think, the biggest proof of concept of Sidewalk Labs as a company, um, their ambitions on Toronto's waterfront. They're based in New York? They are based in New York, yeah. All right. So we now have the players. Take us back to this day uh, on Toronto's waterfront on October 17th, 2017. So the announcement, uh, like I said, it was uh, all three levels of government attended. And I mean, it was billed as Google coming to Toronto's waterfront. And I think the association with Sidewalk Labs or the distinction of Sidewalk Labs was maybe kind of overshadowed by the announcement that Google is coming to Toronto, but certainly met with great fanfare. On Tuesday afternoon, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Premier Kathleen Wynne, and Mayor John Tory, as well as representatives from Waterfront Toronto and Google-connected Sidewalks Lab, announced plans for the community where tens of thousands will work, live and play. Right over there behind me is the future site of Sidewalk Toronto. It's part of the Quayside neighborhood, the first neighborhood of its kind to focus on technology and innovation. And soon it will all be transformed. The vision is for a data-driven community complete with self-driving cars and other elements of a smart neighborhood. You know, this is not Walt Disney World. Uh, This is actually a new real piece of city uh, that one's going to try and make in a real 21st century way. It is expected to be the future hub of tech development in the city along Toronto's eastern waterfront. One of the significant things that is to be acknowledged in this announcement is that this is all pre-Cambridge Analytica, pre-tech lash that that we've really seen dominate the tech media coverage world over the last year. Um, And it's really changed the scene for how we look at companies specifically like Google. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, So what did they announce? (laughs) Like, what did they actually announce that day? They didn't, they weren't going to, they weren't going to start building a Google HQ or uh, a smart city in downtown Toronto that day. Yeah. So I think that stems from the, the misconceptions that I previously mentioned. Um, the concrete things that were announced certainly were a partnership between Sidewalk Labs and Waterfront Toronto um, to revitalize at least a 12-acre slot called the Quayside of the Eastern Waterfront. Um, and that actually is land that is primarily owned by Waterfront Toronto, the corporation itself. Um, Another piece of that announcement was moving Google Canada's Toronto headquarters from downtown just south to the waterfront as a part of this development. But short of that partnership, there were no specifics. And there was a reason for that. It's because it was the announcement of a partnership of a year's worth of planning to come. And those specifics were supposed to come about a year later. 
so in effect, it was a plan to make a plan with great fanfare. Uh, what happened between that moment of making a plan to make a plan and how we got to this stage? Uh, what was supposed to happen? So the plan was uh, a year of negotiations uh, between stakeholders, uh, consultations of the public, ultimately with the goal of developing a, a new agreement between Sidewalk Labs and Waterfront Toronto. Um, and then that agreement would then go through more consultations, more negotiations with the end goal of a master innovation development plan that was supposed to be released uh, this month, October 2018. But things have changed. And so in the summer, we were provided with a, a delay to those timelines. As of now, spring 2019 is when we can expect that more final plan. And that plan is to be brought to both Waterfront Toronto and Sidewalk Labs boards before the government gets involved, before it goes through the city of Toronto and any other stakeholders that that would necessarily have to give their consent or point of view. So from October of last year until June of this year, uh, when the logic launched, you know, let, let's let's go back to now when you enter the scene, because it seemed like things were moving along quite well. Mm-hmm. You came on board and joined the Logic team in March and started doing a little bit of reporting on this. Uh, what was the mood like or the reaction like to your reporting at that point uh, in the process? The first job that I was sort of tasked to do um, in looking into Sidewalk Labs and Waterfront Toronto is who is Sidewalk Labs? Who are the major players within this corporation that Canadians really don't have a, a ton of information about or really any experience with before, not to mention what is the corporate structure. So really the first thing I was looking at was an org chart. Um, I went to Sidewalk Labs multiple times uh, for clarification or comment, and the way that those questions were met were with maybe a little bit of surprise. Um, okay, so you you dropped that first story on June 14th, not, not that I'm counting. <laughs> uh, What was that story? So uh, that story was just a look at, you know, some of the concrete information that hadn't been reported before that we did have at that time, which was the lobbying records registered by Sidewalk Labs, as well as um, Sidewalk Labs affiliated companies and uh, sorry, lobbying the city of Toronto specifically. And so I think that just opened the door for the idea that Sidewalk Labs itself came with a lot of sister companies and affiliate companies that were very relevant in a project of this sort. So we did not know these companies were not a part of the announcement. No. It was all about Sidewalk Labs and City of Toronto, Waterfront Toronto, Government of Canada. Now all of a sudden we're introducing new companies that are a part of Sidewalk. What do those companies do that they would need to be involved in a smart city in downtown Toronto? Right. So these three companies have the potential to provide what they would call urban solutions to city problems that that would certainly be relevant to a project of this sort. City Block Health, uh, Health Technological Advances, CORD deals with traffic. Um, so these are all very relevant uh, to the project at hand. And I think where that brings an interesting angle into this project as a whole is we have a New York-based company coming to downtown Toronto to help revitalize a swath of a very profitable piece of land. Um, And they come with a lot of companies that could provide solutions that you know, maybe Canadian competitors would want to get in on this project as well. What's kind of overhanging on all of this is this pledge of transparency from the people involved in the project that they were going to keep citizens of Toronto uh, involved. And so your story, your first story, when it broke, it was a little bit of a, a an acknowledgement that, 
oh, wait, maybe we aren't getting the whole story because these guys were quietly lobbying, which they're entitled to do, but nobody had actually pointed that out yet. Yeah. So right around the same time, what we didn't know but later found out is that there was also a digital strategy advisory panel. Wow. And, and by the way, we got to come up with better names for some of this stuff. Um, but there was this panel that was looking at privacy and data, and there was some controversy in that panel. Mm-hmm. Want to tell us about that? Yeah, so um, this panel was brought together by Waterfront Toronto, and I think that's an important distinction. They're advising Waterfront Toronto as a corporation and not Sidewalk Labs. They were certainly brought together in the wake of the Sidewalk Labs announcement and for the purpose of informing that planning. This panel was brought together by um, you know, lots of tech industry leaders to work in an advisory capacity over what Waterfront Toronto's digital strategy would be, um, this being one of Waterfront Toronto's first major digital projects, certainly. Um, so these are leading academics, venture capitalists, privacy business. experts in the country. Really. Yeah, yeah, and business leaders, certainly. So I think the first thing that uh, the panel faced was a a request by Waterfront Toronto to sign a confidentiality agreement. Now, this was a requirement by Waterfront Toronto in order to be present during any closed session meetings or meetings that would involve, you know, sensitive information about their planning, what the what their ideas were. And that that request was met with some concern and and some pushback by panel members and ultimately led to the first resignation from the panel, which was John Ruffalo. Uh, John Ruffalo, who was one of the head VCs at, at Omer's at the time and a leading figure in Canadian tech circles. So this really starts to mark the beginning of the pushback period for this project. Uh, what happens next? So actually, before Ruffalo's resignation, um, but while Waterfront Toronto was facing uh, some pushback about the confidentiality agreement, we saw the resignation of the CEO of Waterfront Toronto, which is the organization responsible for this project, Will Flessig. He stepped down in his role as CEO. And Flessig was the one that was the person championing this project um, on behalf of Waterfront Toronto. He was the face of this project, the face of the corporation. So that really seemed like a significant setback for Waterfront Toronto. Following his resignation, sources actually told The Logic that he received a lot of pressure during a board meeting, which was looking at his performance. um, And that ultimately was what led to the decision of him stepping down. Uh, So that kind of provided a different, more controversial air to his resignation and not being this simple, my time, you know, is up with this company and I'm moving on. And so you had this this period where there was a a love-in with Waterfront Toronto and Sidewalk Labs and Alphabet. That seemed to be coming to an end at this point. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It felt like things were maybe snowballing a little bit and would eventually stop. So uh, it was an extremely busy month in the grand scheme of this project. We were expecting the release uh, and had heard that we were going to see this new agreement between Sidewalk Labs and Waterfront Toronto. We were going to finally see a few more specifics, um, especially for those you know, privacy data advocates. We were going to see more specifics on that. Um, but the day before that announcement, we saw a resignation from the board of directors. And this was from a leading developer, uh, a well-known name in Toronto, Julie DiLorenzo. 
And she stepped down saying that she would not be able to give this agreement her confidence and vote towards it. Uh, And not to mention, Julie was actually the lone voice of concern or dissent against this project to begin with. Um, Julie actually expressed great concern in the partnership um, and the amount of time that board members were given to discuss the partnership and was the lone dissenting uh, vote against it. Julie DiLorenzo, a really well-known real estate developer in the city, resigns. We start to learn more about just how rushed this process was. Uh, So this kind of adds another element to the story that not many people had been focusing on. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, this story was long touted as, or at least the project was touted as a tech solution to city planning. But I think one of the the aspects that eluded the public eye was the real estate aspect. So there's a few things to go off of there. First of all, the logic obtained a access to information request, which actually showed some city communications prior to the announcement. Um, and it really displayed a concern on the part of Toronto city planners um, that it would maybe consume more than 12 acres of the eastern waterfront and how it could conflict with current city planning. Um how much is this land worth and how is that going to translate into returns for the public? Because, yes, this land is owned by Waterfront Toronto, but uh, Waterfront Toronto is funded by all three levels of government. So doing an analysis of comparable sites um, and other sales nearby, the logic has actually determined that this land is almost certainly worth over half a billion dollars. Um so after that period, things had actually relatively quieted down. I think the the new agreement that was released end of July showed the public, you know, a few of the details that they had been lacking. Um, also showed that Waterfront Toronto was maybe reasserting themselves as the lead of this project and taking the reins back from sidewalk or just taking the reins in general. And so, yeah, so things began to quiet down uh, until this month, which is actually one year to the date of that initial press conference. Uh, And it seemed like everybody had gotten this process and this project back on track. You had uh, the sidewalk uh, folks saying, look, we're still in the middle of planning to make a plan and we will get back to you when we have it. And critics were saying, "Okay, well, let's see the plan. Uh, Things were relatively calm until they weren't. Yeah. So early this month, we saw two significant developments. Uh, First of all, we reported that the Auditor General of Ontario is doing a value for money audit on Waterfront Toronto. Um, And in our reporting, we talked about the significance of this specific type of audit. But essentially, an audit that is all encompassing of an organization of this sort um, is not particularly common. And it was brought to our attention that this certainly was focused, at least honing in on the Sidewalk Labs partnership as well. And and what was Waterfront Toronto's reaction to the investigation? So Waterfront Toronto also confirmed the investigation. They were also the ones that told us that it had begun early this year. Um, But to us, they called it routine, which really contradicted all the other bodies and players that we spoke to. But that wasn't the only thing that happened that day. Yeah, we released that early that morning. um, And by that afternoon, we saw the second resignation from the digital panel. So um, Sadia Muzaffar, um, she is involved with Tech Girls Canada. She's extremely active uh, tech advocate. And she resigned because of concerns that she had with Sidewalk Labs and Waterfront Toronto's approach to the partnership thus far. 
And that resignation really um, brought those concerns to light for a lot of people. Uh, She certainly is a very strong presence on social media, uh, which I think caught a lot of people's attention when her resignation letter went public. And certainly before this resignation, uh, we had seen a lot of other outlets starting to pay strong attention uh, to this project. But I think this resignation was what really brought home the focus of, you know, all major outlets that cover the tech sphere at all or business in Canada at all. And then the bombshell. So the very next day, uh, we saw a op-ed in the Globe and Mail from Jim Balsilli, who is the former CEO and co-founder of RIM, uh, which is the BlackBerry maker. Um, And it was really a scathing op-ed about his concerns as to who would really benefit from this project and what Toronto would get out of it versus what Sidewalk Labs was hoping to get out of it. Jim Balsilli, the former CEO of Research in Motion, wrote a op-ed in the Globe and Mail a few weeks ago that had some choice words. I'll just read from it, and I'd like you to respond to it. Um, He called the project a, quote, enlightened urban partnership with a foreign company whose business model is built exclusively on the principle of mass surveillance. He said, Sidewalk Toronto is not a smart city. It is a colonizing experiment in surveillance capitalism. I know you have made some changes since then, but comment on that if you would. Well, first of all, without commenting specifically on sort of what his motives might be. And I think the weight that uh, his voice carries in the tech community and the business community in Canada certainly further opened eyes and uh, brought a huge new number of people into the conversation. We saw articles in The Guardian, Gizmodo, um, and a lot more, you know, global players that cover the tech scene paying a lot more attention to this, you know, small project on Toronto's waterfront. So now Sidewalk has a crisis on its hands and Waterfront Toronto has a crisis on its hands. So they bring in Navigator, Mm -hmm. uh, Dan Doktoroff, the the CEO of Sidewalk Labs, goes on a media tour in Toronto, and they really try to limit the damage that's taking place uh, on their project. Yeah. And before this media tour, we knew next to nothing about the the details of what their digital approach would be to this project, which they have now finally released in the form of a proposal, which uh, was provided to the digital panel that's advising Waterfront Toronto. And at the same time, Dan Doktoroff also convened a new advisory council. Um, so this would be a Sidewalk Labs council, uh, which included some of Canada's leading thinkers, as they put it, people from all realms of academics, private, nonprofit. Um, and it really felt like an attempt to you know, regain control on Sidewalk Labs part of the messaging of, of this partnership and this project moving forward. Um, it's important to note that this, this council advises Sidewalk Labs um, and is not to be confused with uh, you know, the digital advisory panel, which advises Waterfront Toronto. Jim Balsilli called it weaponizing ambiguity. And it seems like with all these different panels and, and all these different projects and, and names and everything, we, we get into this uh, bizarre state. So Sidewalk Labs presents this new digital strategy in an attempt to get ahead of things. They say they've been working on it for eight months. Uh, and just days after releasing this, one of the leading privacy experts in the world, Anne Kavukian, who's related to Rafi, uh, yep. her sister? Yeah, uh, yeah, Rafi's sister, Baby Beluga. There you go. So Baby <laughs> Beluga's sister, and highly accomplished in her own right. Absolutely. Resigns. Mm-hmm. Sidewalk Labs brought on uh, this leading privacy expert, Anne Kavukian, 
just prior to the announcement of their partnership with Waterfront Toronto. Um, she is a paid advisor of Sidewalk Labs, not Waterfront Toronto, which I think is a significant clarification. And she is a significant person in Canada as well uh, because of her role as Privacy Commissioner in Ontario for, I believe, three terms. And she's really a figure that they've always had in their back pocket as you know, a point of strength in their approach to privacy and data. Um, now, when we finally see them propose their proposed digital strategy to the digital panel, which remember, this is the panel that advises Waterfront Toronto, also the panel we've seen two resignations from, is when we see some conflict between Anne and Sidewalk Labs. Um, and so just for a little bit of color, during that meeting, she was visibly upset with what she was hearing being proposed. Um, she, you know, shook her head to a number of points, uh, raised her hand profusely to try to to try to chime in with her opinions. Uh, and we really never see her called on. And so when I spoke to Anne after the fact, uh, she clarified that the chair of this panel um, was told that if she was to be called on anyone by anyone, it would be Sidewalk Labs. But um, she was never called on for this meeting. Um, so the leading privacy expert in the country when Sidewalk is presenting their new plan mm -hmm. isn't asked for her opinion. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, it seems that their plan or their proposals did not take her opinions into account, which was what she was hired to do. Um, so that is ultimately why um, within the next 24 hours, we hear of her resignation. She resigns after you know over a year of advising Sidewalk Labs on privacy, um, citing some real concerns about the fact that uh, her you know much touted concept of privacy by design, which is embedding privacy into a project, de-identifying data, as you would say, was not being taken into account. And now, to be fair, Sidewalk Labs' response to this was that they were committed to this. They would certainly embed privacy by design into everything they are involved in, but that they couldn't commit to third parties doing the same. Um, and so that is ultimately where we are left with uh, in terms of what their approach to privacy will be moving forward and also leaves some questions as to, you know, who's mandating these third parties. Uh, one can only assume Waterfront Toronto. So we began with a, a lot of fanfare and a big press conference in October 17th of last year. Mm -hmm. uh, we're now in a position where four people have resigned. One has been essentially pushed out. Uh, you have major serious questions being asked or raised about privacy about the land value in real estate and about the process that has gone into this project. Mm -hmm. This week has been interesting because you now have political figures starting to get involved. Uh, what happened in Ottawa this week? Yeah, so um, I think it was actually two weeks ago or a week ago, my colleague Sean reported that uh, the NDP ethics critic Charlie Angus had wrote a letter to the federal government by way of the infrastructure minister asking them to explain their conversations with Sidewalk Labs. So what communications had taken place between the federal government and Sidewalk Labs, which ultimately resulted uh, in this project taking shape. And that was followed by a visit from Google's Colin McKay to the Ethics Committee on the Hill this week. We do not sell personal information. This is really important. I want to repeat that point. We do not sell personal information. We strive to be upfront about the data we collect, why we collect it, which we ultimately we saw some very tough questioning from all parties regarding the Sidewalk Labs project in general, uh, which, you know, we saw was very difficult for Colin McKay. Well, and to be fair to Colin, mm -hmm. 
we said time and time again, Google is not Sidewalk Lab. Yeah, so difficult for them to comment on, especially to comment on behalf of a company that is their sister company, um, to be fair to them, certainly. Um, but I think one of the most striking things to come out of that was an acknowledgement on Google's part that the concerns and the issues that have plagued this project for the last year um, really ultimately are falling on Google's reputation in Canada as well. They certainly are... Um, extremely crucial to the Kitchener-Waterloo ecosystem. They're, of course, a major global player. Um, Alphabet is what top four companies in the world. From market cap, yeah. From market cap. Um, and so this has some serious global significance. And ultimately, Google and Sidewalk Labs will want to make sure that the distinction between those two companies is clear to Canadians moving forward. One of the things that I keep thinking about throughout your reporting and what we hear uh, from supporters and proponents of this project is, look, I mean, th this is just a proposal, right? Uh, it's just the beginning of a plan to make a plan. Are critics making a mountain out of a molehill? Yeah, I think that has been a major criticism that we've heard from proponents or supporters of the project um, about the concerns that have been raised throughout the last year. Um, but I think the answer is ultimately no. Um, the announcement that we saw in October of last year I think that's where all of these misconceptions stem from, which is the fact that this project felt like, in the public's eye, a done deal. Um, it had the support of all three levels of government and really didn't focus on the process in that announcement so much as it focused on the grand ambitions. Um, and I think that uh, what the public has been trying to do, critics and um, advocates alike, is really nail down the specifics of this project before we get to a final plan, uh, which I think everybody can agree is, is an important step in a development this significant and this large. The natural tendency of Silicon Valley is to move fast and break things. Uh, and that just doesn't seem to work when you enter the real world. Uh, and that may be one of the, the big challenges here is critics would argue that, sure, it's 12 acres, but it sets a precedent for whatever else you build, not only in that area, but across the country and around the world. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the most interesting aspects of that is uh, this notion from Silicon Valley of move fast and break things, which has a great tension when put up against the natural process of city planning, which is really ultimately the opposite of that approach. Uh, it is a very thorough, timely process um, that I don't think has matched well with a major tech company. Okay. So, Amanda, when we look at that first press conference with all these players in 2017 to today, uh, you know, we had a story a couple of weeks ago from Murad Hamadi in, in Ottawa who asked the very same people that were there at that presser what they thought about this project now. And it was a hot potato. Nobody wanted to touch this. Uh, where are the politicians now? Um, I think to a certain extent, all politicians are keeping the door open for that championing. Um, it's certainly been toned down throughout the year of, um, you know, concerns and, and turmoil that the project has seen. Um, it's not the type of championing that we saw um, to the extent where they're standing up and, you know, putting their face as a, a measure of support for this project, as we saw during the announcement. But there really hasn't been any major criticisms or concerns that that have come from politicians first. Um, they've they've acknowledged concerns from critics and the public, um, and yeah, really keeping the door open for both possibilities uh, for the possibility that this project works out. So then um, 
it can be seen that they've supported it all along or the possibility that, you know, things continue to go downhill and and they their statements didn't go without acknowledging those concerns. So at the end of the day, it, it comes down purely to politics. Yeah, absolutely. Do you view this as a local story? Uh, as somebody who's lived here for um, over five years, it feels very local to me, but I think it's a case study of sorts for a lot of things, for a tech giant, as a lot of people generalize Sidewalk Labs as. I think that's still fair to say. They are under the umbrella of Google's parent company, Alphabet. Um coming into a, you know, a fresh ecosystem for them um, that hasn't maybe really dealt with such a ambitious plans before. But it is also a case study of an American company coming into a Canadian city. I think that's certainly what's piqued a lot of people's interest. Uh, it's certainly what, you know, a lot of Canada's tech community feels most passionate about. And I think holds a lot of relevance for other situations in other Canadian cities even that have seen, you know, Vancouver with Amazon. And one thing that we haven't referenced throughout this interview is the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which, uh, you know, has plagued our headlines and and the subsequent uh, tech lash that companies have faced all over the world. I think that there is a pre-Cambridge Analytica approach to the Sidewalk Labs project um, and and one that they've had to an alter since Cambridge Analytica, um, and that this ultimately tells a story of how tech affects everyday life, whether it be controlling data or evidence of surveillance, and, and those companies, you know, monetizing that kind of information. This is just yet again another example of concerns that have plagued the tech world over the last year. Um. Since you started reporting, we've we've really seen mainstream outlets take the ball and run with it to great effect. Josh O'Kane and Alex from the Globe and Mail, uh, Marco Oved uh, at the Toronto Star. And I'm curious, in the larger media ecosystem, how would you position your coverage, breaking a story that nobody was really paying attention to, to the point now where it's being mentioned in Ottawa? So I think from the get-go, you're right. There were certainly a few voices that were really focused on, you know, all aspects of of the project and and not just covering the press release type of information that we were given when we were given it. Um, I think our coverage certainly opened the door for the type of reporting that I believe and I'm sure a lot of others believe should be done in terms of any tech project, looking at not just what the specifics of information that were handed by the companies uh, themselves, not just covering the the press events, um, but really digging into, um, you know, if they're not going to provide us with any specifics on the project, how how do I glean more information on this project myself? Um, and I think that's ultimately how we landed the first story about lobbying was, you know, if, where can we look to to get some sort of idea of what's happening? And, and the, our first look was at the lobbying records. Um, in terms of how it's played into the approach by media moving forward, uh, I think I can only hope and think it's been um, reflected in reporting from the Globe and Mail and the Star that approach has been carried where, you know, we're, we're not just going to wait for a big event to happen. We're, we're going to investigate this project, try to find these answers ourselves, where where they're not provided to us. You know, for me, uh, I've been doing this for 20 years almost and have always worked in very large institutional newsrooms. Uh, and I must confess that when when I started the new publication, my my thinking was we will compete 
uh, we will ultimately, you know, elbows out, knock and drag, get to the story before anybody else. And what this particular story has shown me is that we're actually better off when we all work together. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean collude on stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, we all have a role to play in the ecosystem that with your fantastic reporting, you moved a story forward that needed the amplification of the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star. Mm -hmm. And so when we have this conversation in Canada around the future of journalism, it's actually changed my view a little bit from being that, you know, we either a binary choice of we need to save legacy media and, and get bailouts from the government, or we need to prop up the startups. The way I look at it now is we need both. Mm -hmm. uh, we need the support for startups, um, and we need the amplification of the large, massive media organizations that we have, uh, which is why throughout this process, you know, I've, I've been a stickler, and I know you know this, uh, about citation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important that we give each other credit for our work. Canada Land wrote a great story a couple of months ago about the lack of citation at the CBC. You know, it's important for for journalists to value each other's work, because if we're asking other people in the age of fake news and uh, a lot of attacks globally on the press, if we're asking people to value our work, we should value our work too. And part of that is giving credit where credit is due for the reporting that's been done. And it's been really refreshing to see the Globe and Mail come out and give you the, the credit that you deserve for the fantastic reporting you've done. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, uh, I mean, I think a, a great case study of that is was seen in uh, Ann Kavuki and the privacy experts resignation. Um, you know, we we broke that story on a Friday night. Um, it certainly caught a lot more attention than uh, had it just been reported by us. Is it about impact or is it about uh, accolades? And mm -hmm. I think you mentioned Cambridge Analytica, the pre and post Cambridge Analytica. Uh, if tech reporting in Silicon Valley 10 years ago had had a focus on the accountability journalism that you are doing. And I've had people tell me this as well. It's not just my own viewpoint. Uh, you could argue that there would not have been a Cambridge Analytica scandal, mm -hmm. uh, that the companies in Silicon Valley uh, and the regulators around the issues would have had the calluses on their fingers uh, enough to know that they could have to stay within a 40-yard lines. Um, what do you think in terms of Canadian tech uh, and the innovation ecosystem in general, which is far beyond tech, uh, what do you think of where Canadian journalism is on that plane? Yeah, so I mean, it, it's almost certainly fair to say that it's lagging behind um, behind coverage of other sectors, uh, behind the type of tech coverage you see coming out of the states. Um, and I think that ultimately, um, you know, does a disservice to the public that that journalists are trying to serve. Um, tech is this very, it isn't something that is so tangible for everyone. Not unlike politics, there is a lot of weeds associated with tech. Uh, it gets very complicated at times. Um, and that has always been the job of a journalist is to dissect it in a way that um, anyone can dive into a story and, and involve themselves. Yeah, and, and you know, picking up on that thread, I think when we think of tech, uh, as a capital T tech, we often think of gadgets, Steve Jobs parading out there and, and releasing a new iPhone. Uh, but in fact, these stories are about power, about money, uh, about citizens and their place in the world in the same way that covering any large government is. You know, when you're dealing with the fangs, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, uh, the five largest tech companies with a market cap in the 800 to a trillion dollar range, these are 
massive, massive influences on our everyday lives, whether that's cognitive in how we uh, have our kids interact with devices, whether it's uh, economic in the impact that they have on all innovation economies around the world as they try to move and pivot and their role in, in, in making that happen. And also politically, I mean, all we need to do is say the word Russia and Donald Trump together, and you get a sense of the role that big tech can play in our lives. Uh, and so, yes, tech coverage seems to be maturing. New York Times, Washington Post just announced a whole bunch of new staffers in Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley really is the hub for a lot of that. But as we're seeing, and as we're seeing with this story in particular, it is permeating and stretching well beyond the borders of Menlo Park or Mountain View. That was your Canada Land. Canada Land is on Twitter, at Canada Land. Their website is canadalandshow.com. You can find me on Twitter at dskok, S-K-O-K. This episode is produced by Ali Graham. Canada Land's managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what Canada Land does, please support them on Patreon. Hey, David here. Jesse gets to read ads, so I will too. If you want to read more of the work Amanda and others at The Logic are doing, right now you can get 25% off a subscription. Just go to thelogic.co slash subscribe and enter the promo code CANADALAND, all lowercase. You can also sign up for our free daily briefing newsletter on our homepage. And I know he won't like that I'm saying this, but Jesse took a lot of risk to launch this podcast, and he, along with his incredible team, are proving that Canadians will support original Canadian journalism. Jesse really is leading the way for an entire generation of media entrepreneurs, including me. And for that, I just want to say thank you.